in the worthy name of that Lord Jesus that we have been singing about, talking about, worshiping this morning. And uh, it's our Savior. Not only is he our example, but he gives us the power to follow his example. He gives us the desire to follow his example. He gives us the wisdom to follow his example. He is actually everything you think about it. It is a blessing to be here after four weeks, and it's hard to believe that one week ago we were sitting in a little village church in Avuna with people we couldn't understand their language, holding a few children that we did understand their scent, um, but necessarily enjoyed it. But it was very, very different, and yet it was... It was a blessing because there was there was the, there was a commonality there also. You know that that possibility of what can experience from one week to another is only possible with modern in modern times. But um, it uh, it's amazing. It's just amazing. Well, thank you all for praying for us. Uh, we were not disappointed. We got a little more than we expected. And, uh, we, you know, we just, the whole, the whole event was intended to be a three week deputation visit with Tim and Cheryl and to a lesser extent Warren and Kim. But when we had, uh, initially when it was decided, I think I'm correct. In saying this, uh, the mission committee can correct me, but it was decided way back when Tim's went that once a year, somebody from either the mission committee or the ministry would go over there and connect hearts with them and also that we can see what's going on there and to have that connection there. So that's what the visit was about. But uh, it was a lot more than that. I believe I had more packed in those several weeks than I've ever had in my life. And just a few of the highlights were flat tires, lion dangers, premature babies, house confiscations, and interrogating government officials. If you ever have a three weeks like that, come and tell me about it. I'd like to hear it. <laughs> but uh, it's been in full. But it's also been a really inspiration to us. It definitely took us out of our, our normal rut. It, it definitely did. It had that effect for sure. But God answered so many prayers, and he gave us back our Isaacs more than once. Because there's numerous times things looked very bleak there. And there was time for prayer, and there was a response, and we're thankful for that. So this morning, I thought I would... For this morning, for the most part, I would just share a lot what has happened, sort of in a chronological form, so that you can sort of, you know, when you hear snippets here and snippets there, and, and you have an you have understanding, but as you as it flows, it's my my desire this morning that we can all be inspired and encouraged and motivated. 
to love God and to worship him more and more. That's my desire this morning. So um, why don't we just, just stand for a word of prayer if you can. Let's go before our God, our Heavenly Father. We are thankful to you. Thank you, Lord, that you brought us home safe. Thank you, Lord, also for the congregation here, for sustaining them and us together, Lord. Lord, we do pray, as you think of Tim and Cheryl, it's already afternoon there, and I pray for the, them over there and their family, Warren and Kim, the orphanage, and also the little church in Ivuna. Just lift them up before you, Lord, and, and Lord, pray, Lord, that we know that you are faithful to them. We pray you would bless them and pray, Lord, that they would all be faithful to you. Pray also, Lord, this morning that you would bless us here in this place. Inspire us, Lord, to love you, to walk after you, with you, alongside of you. And, Lord, Look forward to that crown that you will give to us someday, to all of your faithful subjects. We pray you be with us this morning in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So about a year and a half ago, Tim returned to Ambea. And so this deputation visit was a little past due. But we waited a little longer so that we could take Sarah with us. Our daughter, Sarah, 19 years old, so she could be there over the time of um, the birth of their little baby that they were expecting. She was planning to be there for a while before the baby's born, but her training period was a little shorter than was expected. And we also took our son, Stephen, along because he's the same age as Tim's two oldest children, and it's important that children of missionaries maintain connections with their home culture as well and their home church. And it may be even more important than their parents. This is especially true because there's no established congregation there. Uh, as far as established, there's a little church out in Ivuna. There's really no children their age that I know of there. And so they, uh, Tim and I, and, and Cheryl was involved sometimes also, we talked quite a bit about the identity of missionary children. Where do they belong to? Who do they actually connect with? Who are they? And that's, that's pretty important. So anyhow, that's one of the reasons we took Stephen along. We'd have loved to take our six-year-old daughter, Serena, along. But we um, decided it's expensive enough of a trip because she's right Amy's age. And we also found out that she has a twin in the orphanage. One of the uh, little girls is, what's well, her birthday? It's the same day. So maybe next time. <laughs> well, so I kept a record of each day's events, and I'm just going to go through some of the highlights. And the first, highlight, the first thing we did is we, my first time to fly internationally. So we left Dulles International Airport with a little bit of apprehension. You know, how is this going to work? We're going to land another place and going to be in another country, and they're going to speak another language. Uh, 
house is all going to go. Well, after a 10-hour flight, we landed in Istanbul, Turkey. Then four hours later, just before dark, we were airborne again, heading mostly south. Across Turkey, across the Mediterranean, and then right across Egypt is where we went. And it was dark by that time. That plane wasn't very full, so we uh, actually were able to get a window seat and look down. And I slept a while, and then I woke up and I looked at the flight simulator, and that you have at the seat, you can see where you're flying, where you're going to fly, and so on. And I see we're going to go right past Mount Kilimanjaro, and it's on our side of the plane. It was full moon. <laughs> so... Uh, we watched. I did. I watched for a while, and there were some clouds around. But sure enough, there was Mount Kilimanjaro, snow-capped peak, shining in the moonlight, out of the looking down on it from the airplane. That was quite a sight. That was awesome. Our first real culture shock, I suppose, was after we landed at Dar, and uh, we went through the visa got our visa and went through the baggage and got out there. Our baggage was waiting for us, and we had totes of it, two for each. It's eight totes of stuff plus our own uh, carry-on and our own backpack, so we were loaded. Well, there was more than our baggage waiting out for us. <laughs> there were some young men came running up with carts, and they were going to help us. And, well, we needed to get these totes. To a taxi driver, he's going to put it on a bus. We were going to get on a plane. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. We had to leave by 7. We didn't know anything how this is going to work. So we solicited their support. <laughs> and uh, it went well, actually. We had a taxi driver in half an hour. He showed up, and we got everything. Everything was fine except this whole issue about the tip. <laughs> we didn't you know, understand the value of the shilling or what was expected, and, and I, I think they... Uh, I think they got a good tip. Let's say it that way. Well, we landed in Ambea, and we saw Tim and the boys. For the first time, they came out to pick us up in their Land Rover. They have a Land Rover, which is a missionary Land Rover, which um, different that the missionaries use. So whenever they, they drive them out, they, they, they pay so much in this fund, and the gas money and the repairs and everything comes out of it. Well, this Land Rover became a major part of our lives for the next couple of weeks. Uh, went back to Tim's and spent basically all morning long visiting. And the afternoon, went to a local market and tried to get my phone to work. We never actually got it to work to call home, but we did finally eventually get that we could WhatsApp and so on. The next day was Sunday. We arrived there on a Saturday. The next day was a Sunday, and we all piled, all 11 of us piled in that Land Rover and went an hour and a half to Kawita, where Warren and Kim live and where the orphanage is. Sarah O'Neill and Joanna Shirk are the two main girls taking care of the orphanage right now, and Sarah is... Um, well, she's not well. I, I'm not even exactly sure what uh, emotionally and physically she's not well. So she's actually over there, and Rebecca was nurturing her. I took her to the hospital and, and some other tests while we were there. So Trudy Copeland, which used to be out at 
Ivuna, but they were chased out of there. She's actually helping at the orphanage right now. And so there's the orphanage. I don't understand everything, but I understand they're trying to, these four children that are there, they're trying to keep them connected to their own culture, even while they're teaching them godly upbringing and godly values and things like that, because uh, they're not being adopted. They're not going to come to America. They're, uh, you know, exactly what the future of that. So they have, they have a vision there. Warren had a lesson for the children that morning, and then I had a main message there, and then we stayed all day till nearly dark and drove home. The next day was Monday, and we spent, Tim and I spent most of the morning talking, and one of the main topics was the church in Avuna. There we have Cradle. He's the older man that's there. He's a Christian. He's a, he's a solid Christian. He's a stable brother. Um, He's actually known in the community for, for counsel. He, he's, he's definitely a, um, has, has some abilities and so on. And the main question was, should we ordain Cradle while I'm there or should we wait? And so we're weighing out the pros and cons of it. So he has a lot going for him, but he's not a gifted teacher. His wife is not a Christian at this point even though she's not opposing him as she was, his children are not, you know, you look at the qualifications of an elder, his children don't really fit that real well either. So at the end, we just thought, well, it's probably best that we just wait, just give it some more time and uh, keep things. uh, So Credo is leading out there, but he doesn't have an ordination. And then we thought of our two weeks that we're planning to spend there. How are we going to, how are we going to schedule our two weeks? And it looked like we would have wanted to go to Ivuna probably the next weekend, but we weren't sure about the government situation and we knew we needed to go to the government office and so a lot of uncertainties down the road. But right now this week we have sort of an open week and uh, we had talked earlier about the possibility of going to a national park. You know, national parks in Africa are different than national parks here. So, the evening before we went, we decided, yes, this is the time to go. If we're going to go, we'll go. And uh, we, we really wanted to go there and bless him. If it's not good for you to take four days and go to a national park, if you find that a negative thing, then we don't want to go. But they, they decided yeah, it's a positive thing. So the next morning, all 11 of us in that Land Rover. Now, just imagine with me, it's a Land Rover has bucket seats in the front, so it's two people. Then it has a regular seat in the back that's three people. Then it has two tiny seats in the back for children, flip-down seats, a little bit like the back of a pickup. Although they were forward facing, not sideways like some pickups are. And then we have two days of luggage along. <laughs> so we were packed. We were packed. And we had about 250 miles to drive on paved roads and then probably about 75 miles to drive on unpaved roads to get there. And, uh, we had prepared for the trip ahead of time. We had 
gotten some sponsors to pay for the trip for Tim if if we go. So the question was, can we go? Should we go? When should we go? We decided we will go, and this is the time. So that was our first major travel there. Driving down the road, this road that we traveled on from Mbea to go out to Iringa, 250 miles of it, is the main road between Dar Salaam and Zimbabwe, which is the in, in, inland country. It's called the Tans Sim Road, I believe. I believe I'm right with that. Zimbabwe does not have a port. They don't have a, any 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 seaport. So everything that goes to Zimbabwe has to come in by road, and these trucks are traveling on this road. It's a two-lane highway, and the trucks are generally going from between five miles an hour up the hill to I don't know how fast down the hill. <laughs> and um, But the other thing that we saw there, and this is part of the culture, is people are walking everywhere. And so we see five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old children and, and on up through and adults and everything walking along this road. The shoulder's about two or three feet wide, and they're walking along this the main highway between these two countries, and they're right there, little children and big trucks all together on this road. It was quite a sight to see. <clears throat> and the road, some places pay very nicely, and then for no reason at all it has speed bumps where you have to slow down, and then other places it's just simply a quarter of a mile section of unpaved, and I guess they're doing construction. So we went... Regularly from 140 kilometers to 5 kilometers and 140 and back and forth. That's, that's how our trip was. There was only one problem. We felt this bump, 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 bump as we were speeding up and thought, oh, <laughs> something's wrong with our tire. But we couldn't, I got out, we couldn't find it, but it located us eventually. One time going 140, the tread flew off. So we changed the tire. And then after we got into town, we replaced that tire with a new tire and put the new tire on the back in case we needed it. So that night we spent we spent the night in Iringa, which is the last town before we head out to the bush. And I remember we got a rice and bean supper that night, 65 cents. <laughs> it was almost more than we could eat. It was a big meal. And... Uh, and that night also, I think Tim introduced us to what fried fish are. He bought a fish. And after that, Stephen always wanted a fish if he had a chance to that. Well, we drove the next day several hours on this gravel road to the park. Rich people fly into this park. We're not rich people. We're driving. <clears throat> And then we got to the gate, and then we have to, when we get in, you have to pay to get in, and you also have to pay for your housing, you also have to pay for the vehicle to get in, and then you have to pay for a guide, and I think I'm missing a few other things. You have to pay for all your meals once you're in there. So we went through all that, and we found out that the only housing available, except for one cottage for four people, the only housing available was $50 a night per person, in some kind of a lodge, or $10 a night per person 
in a one long bunk bed facility with no partitions. <laughs> and that put us a little dilemma. Well, well, what do we do here? Well, we had one cottage for sure. We thought we need to get a better facility for her. So we got the $25 a night cottage for her and Tim and their three youngest children. But we got the $10 per night bunk bed, the rest of us. And the people there at at the, the Africans there at the gate could not understand why these Americans would take those primitive facilities. Well, it's because we weren't rich, I guess. Well, also there, we also had to pick up our guide. Now, remember, we had 11 people in this, and it was packed full. Now we had to take a guide along. Uh, have you ever heard the saying, there's always room for one more? Well, in this case, there was room for half of one more. Because we finally decided, there's a sunroof here, we decided his best place is for his feet to be on the seat and his head to be up and looking out over. And there, he's our guy, so he can see the animals better. So that it, was, it was good both ways. So that's how he actually took him in. And that's exactly, that's how he drove in this Land Rover the rest of the time. Standing on the seat with his head up on top looking out over. So there was room for half or more. So we bumped another 10 or 15 kilometers to our bunk facilities, and then we unpacked and ate lunch there. Then we went over to uh, where Cheryl and where that cottage was, where Tim and Cheryl was about 15 minutes away on a, on a dirt road. So we went over through there, and then they told us where it was. So we drove down this little, down the hill around the bend, down below the, the restaurant that was there, an overgrown path down to the cottage. As we were driving, all of a sudden the front end of the Land Rover lurched and the back one lurched right after it. And we stopped and listened to our left two left tires hiss their air out. <laughs> About that time, we also found out we knew they did it walking trails. You get you get an armed ranger and then you can go walking. You can walk four hours on a trail. And we found out they don't do walking they don't do walking tours this time of the year because it's the wet season, the grass is high, it's too dangerous to walk. Even with an armed guide, you don't walk because there's lions. So here we were. We, could, we knew we couldn't go on walking tours. And now our vehicle is stranded. And town is hours away. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing close by. I, I actually admit I was a little more optimistic that time than Tim was. Tim was pretty down. Uh, Tim is most of the time more optimistic than I am. I said, wow, we are really something. We can't walk, we can't drive, and we're here for two days, nothing to do. It takes at least a day to fix it. Well, the, where our bunk beds were, there was a little village there that pretty well took care of the park. And there were families there, and there was a shop there, and and so they came over, the maintenance came over, and they looked at it and said, oh, no, we can fix these tires. We can sew up the side, and then we put an inner tube in, you're good to go. So they took, we took the two tires off, and then Tim and I went over through. I think some of you must have gone over, too, because you were there as well. 
while we watched them in African style take off our tires. If you know what a handyman jack is, and you know what the back end of a pickup is, so you put the handyman jack on top of the tire, and then you put the jack underneath the pickup bed, and then you jack the thing up and break the beads. That's, that's, that's the thing that was happening on the one tire. The other one, they did it more traditionally with a hammer. I think it was actually, they were showing us some diligence, I think, on that one. Because those tires are hard to get off. But anyhow, they worked for several hours. In the meantime, we were there. Um, a volleyball game started up in the local community. Uh, the black youth there were playing volleyball. And you could tell by by the looks of it, they did it pretty regular. So uh, Sarah and Tim entered a volleyball game. Then over in a little Lutheran church, just a little little block building, there were some Africans, six of them singing, and so we sat in there and listened to them a little bit. It was that was a cultural experience also. And just before dark, before they were done yet, before dark, someone said, "Oh, there's some lions down here." Someone saw some lions, so the ranger. We didn't have any vehicles, so the ranger. Uh, park ranger there, their pickup that they were using to jack up to take the beat off, they said, well, we'll take you down and look at them. So we went on the back of the pickup. I think most of us were there except Cheryl, I believe, and maybe some of the smaller children, I believe. And we went down, and there we could see them across the creek, and the ranger did what you're not allowed to do. He drove down to the creek, and right across there was two lions, a male and a female, just laying down there. Until we were all done, it was dark. We saw the stars. Um, by that time, we had an armed ranger there because where the where the lion, uh, where the where the Land Rover had a flat tire with about a 200 foot, 300 foot walk to the cottage. Well, in between the Land Rover and the cottage, there the grass was pressed down, and they said, "Yeah, there's a pride of lions walk through here," <laughs> and the grass was still down. So. We the, the 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 guard wouldn't let us walk. I have a picture of him with his with his gun. So it was actually that flat tire experience enriched our experience rather than diminish it. Is what actually ended up being there. And we did have two wonderful days at the park. Um, the children, Stephen and the boys, played with the baboons. <laughs> they were acting like naughty children. They put a plastic bottle out with some things in it and set it out there, and the baboons would come and screw the top off and dump the stuff out, and they would chase them, and it was stuff. Well, actually, before that, um, I had some mouthwash come loose inside my backpack, and it's, the smell wasn't very pleasant so I spread my stuff out on a concrete uh, looked like the top of a cistern or something and the baboons were around there and I couldn't find my one sock so I just walked away I could see it all the time but I had to stick my head in the bathroom door to see if my sock was there in 10 seconds time I looked out here's the baboon running off with some of my stuff and I <laughs> chased him and hollered and he left it go <laughs> but so they, they, they caught on to that and they, they began to Utilize that uh, that thing. Now, we had a wonderful time there. The baboons, we had giraffes, elephants, 
impalas is something like deer and zebras and jackals and ostrich and hippopotamuses and lots of birds and the landscape, we, we drove around for several hours at a time. The landscape was always changing from flat to hilly to shrubs and the trees, and it was always different. One time, the Land Rover got stuck. This is the time I was stayed back cleaning out my backpack. I didn't go along, but the rest went, and the Land Rover got stuck on a gully. The, the tracks were so deep that the center stuck on the ground, and they were stuck. They couldn't move forward or back, just spun. So they had to all get out. And right there, right in the middle of the trail, was a fresh lion track. And there was high grass all around. And uh, they had been praying to see lions. Now they began to pray they wouldn't. So that evening, one evening, we sat around a campfire, and a hyena just walked right past us. It was a different world. It actually reminded me of David. David, out there with his sheep watching over them, protecting his sheep in lion country, because lions were in the Middle East back then. But there was no armed ranger for David. There was no solid stone building to sleep in for David. And I like to hear his experience from his own words, and you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17, we hear David describing his experience out there with the lions and with the sheep. Starting at verse 34. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it, the lamb, out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servants slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God." And David said, moreover, the Lord had that the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistines. And Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. Now, David was in the promised land. The Bethlehem, the hills around Jerusalem, that was part of the promised land. Wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was the land that God had promised that flowed with milk and honey. It was the land of hills and valleys that received rain from heaven. What was danger and lions doing in the promised land? Well, the promised land is not heaven. I know that songs many times picture the promised land as heaven, and I understand you can actually picture the promised land as heaven. That, that, that's okay. But the promised land is simply the land that had been promised. <laughs> that's what it means. that right English? Is that right logic? But this land that had been promised must be entered by faith. It must be conquered by faith. 
But oh, we can't conquer it because the giants are too big. The people are too strong. But God said, I will give it to you. Give it? Yes, he will give it, but not with us sitting in a corner. You must go and get the promised land. So what is the land of conquest that we are dealing with? Is it the souls of people? Is it victory over our flesh? Is it our besetting sin? Is it a godly family that's in order? What is the land of conquest for us, for you, for me? What is that land of conquest? You know, it's all, all of that plus a lot more. But see, the conquest that we are called to go after, that land of promise, God said, I will give it to you. You will be victorious. You will have victory. You will make it to the end. He says all those lands of promise. But those conquests that are given to us are not for the faint of heart. Do you want victory over your bad habit? Your tongue? Your appetite? Your emotions? Be ready to do hand-to-hand combat with a lion. That's what it means. But do it in the context that David did it. When he was out there, he didn't just go out the first day and do the lion. He had a God that he worshipped. He had practiced with his sling. He was, I'm sure, was vigilant to avoid lion-prone areas. I don't think he just waded into the danger areas. But when the lion comes, he was ready. He stood up to the challenge. He saved the land, and he confronted the lion. He confronted the lion. By the way, um, the title this morning is Facing the Lion. He confronted the lion, he saved the lamb, and he took care of that lion. That is one less lion to deal with. But there were other lions to deal with as well. Lions like sheep. And lions, the reason lions go after sheep is because they are successful sometimes. I wonder how many other shepherds were out on those hills And how many shepherds did not do what David did? And the lions got sheep. How many shepherds ran away from the face of the lion? But here was one young man who did not run away from the face of the lion. Are you that young man or woman or man, or woman, or child. Will you face the lions in your life? 
Will you conquer the land that God promised that you can have? And like David, be prepared then for greater responsibility in the future. Now in the Ru'aha National Park, we were not allowed to face the lions. <laughs> God calls us to face the lions, but here we were not allowed to face the lions. So I couldn't go out at nighttime and look at the stars. I was not allowed to do that. I really didn't want to see the stars. I really wanted to see the Milky Way one good time in Africa. Well, we spent two nights there, and Friday morning we headed out with the guy still sticking his head out the sunroof. And then we headed the long way home again. I remember sitting in the back. You know how it is. The way home is a little longer than the way there usually. <laughs> Sat in the back and told the boys stories about our childhood. That's one of the things we did. On the way back, we stopped for a prenatal checkup for Cheryl, and everything's fine. No problem. Everything's good. Well, the next day was Saturday. That we talked almost all morning again. Cheryl, Vanita, I, and Tim. If we went there to communicate with them, at least that part of the trip is going well. The boys built a fort in the backyard, and then I prepared a sermon for the next day. But my cultural experience was just just beginning. Tim wanted me to see what the local church, the local Pentecostal, the, the average Pentecostal church was like. So he said there is a TAG, which is Tanzanian Assemblies of God Church. Their first service starts early, and it's in English. And then when we're done with that service, we can go to the Deeper Life Church, where we go to occasionally. And... Um, and then we could go to two services, and I'm a very agreeable person, so I agreed. Yeah, we, we'd go. Well, we got to the TA church. Uh, the service had already begun, and we were we came to the door, and there's the usher, and he takes us like we do here. We take him right up to the front seat. That's what he did, take us right up to the front seat. And there were these eight people in the middle, four men and four women, and there was this music playing, and they were doing, I'm not going to imitate it, I'm serious, I'm not. They were doing their swaying dance type of thing. So I was sitting there, there's a big speaker on the floor about 10 feet there. The music, the chorus was repetitious over and over and over and over. Well, I don't know if that one was, when the congregational song was that, was that way. I don't remember how this one was. So, they were doing their... Swaying dance. After that song was done, another group came up, and they were getting ready to do whatever, and then all of a sudden they sat down. And so what's going on? Oh, something about their equipment didn't work, so they couldn't do their thing, so we missed that one. And then a little bit after that, the pastor asked all the first attenders to raise their hands, so we raised our hands. So maybe we can, any, any first attenders here? <laughs> Then after that, a courtship was announced. The pastor announced that there's a new courtship. What I understand is active with an engagement. Uh, a couple in church was engaged, and that was uh, that elicited a lot of clapping and cheers. I guess I got the best way to describe that. 
later on, they both came up front, one on the one side and the other on the other side, and then long lines formed while the well-wishers well wished them well. So that's what, how they announced their engagements. And when they have an offering, they have a, um, a, some kind of a box up front, and people line up and put their offering in, and then sit down again. Then they had a message. The message was in English, and someone interpreted it into Swahili, and, um, and it was a message on, on courage out of the example of Joshua and David with the lions, <laughs> and also the, uh, the apostles when they faced the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the early apostles. And he especially encouraged the young men to get up and do something, that I remember. We met the interpreter after the service, and that's when Tim learned that he was the orthopedic in the local hospital, which became a very key contact, because that was the doctor who did the C-section on Cheryl just a few days later. He was the head doctor at the local, one of the, the local hospital, which is the best hospital in the area. So immediately after that, then we left the service. After it was over, we left immediately and went to the Deeper Life Church. And uh, they already had, again, that was already in progress. We were there a little late. So, um, you see, there was a Bible study going on in Swahili, and Tim was my was my interpreter for that one. And our family needed to be introduced, so we all got up front and introduced ourselves, and then... I had a message while Tim interpreted. Pastor Kavloso is the pastor's name there. Him and Tim have a, a very good relationship, and he is a deeper life pastor, which as, as those churches go, deeper life is definitely has a much standard, higher standard of holiness than the general, well, pretty well any other church does that we know of in Africa. But they, they, still, they still have real differences in doctrine, such as the two kingdom concept. They, um, they, have, they have policemen in their, in their ranks. And, of course, I don't know if Tanzania ever goes to war, but you know, they, they're, they're, the two kingdom concept and a number of other things to have a sort of a tinge of a health and wealth teaching in there. So there's, there's definitely differences the, the blessing of it is the high standard of righteousness that they lift up in contrast to most of the other churches. But Pastor Cavoso is the pastor of a very small church in Mbeya. And him and Tim, they're not, they're not far apart. In fact, I'm not even sure. I'm sure there are some differences, but they are, uh, he is, he sees the issues and he agrees with him, and so there's there's a pretty good kinship there. Um, if the government does not or will not allow us to work in continue our work in Avuna and with the church there, Pastor Cavoso will likely take oversight of that little church there if we can't continue on. He was out there three times already in that uh, long trip out through there. Translation work. So I'd like to bring this in here. According to Tim, there are no Anabaptist churches in Tanzania. 
Now that might seem strange because the Mennonites were in Tanzania for a number of generations ago. I probably, the length of the conference, I didn't study up the history, but just completely enculturated Mennonite churches, and I don't know if you could identify them or not. I, I, yeah, there is actually, there is actually some big Mennonite churches some places, but as far as our belief system, no, they're not there. There's little or no support material as far as Swahili language teaching material of real teaching from Anabaptist perspective. So I asked him, what is your vision? Right now, he's not, they're not doing church work. They're not, uh, they're not witnessing. His main emphasis is translation work. And that's not very glamorous. I mean, in fact, that's pretty tedious. And it's might be, uh, it might be a little difficult to generate enthusiasm for something that takes several years and not much happening. But they're doing foundational work. And I'd like to uh, just bring that up a little bit this morning. And here's what he wrote. He said, uh, We believe that our days may be limited in the country of Tanzania to minister with the freedom as we have known it. Therefore, I believe it is important that I shift most of my focus to prepare the local people where we have planted seeds to carry on with and here to carry on with. Number one, our distinctive message of clear teaching on the kingdom of God Holiness, the two kingdoms, and a cohesive set of doctrine and practice which is consistent with it. Two, to have their identity strengthened with such teaching. Three, to give them confidence in sharing their faith with others. Now here's the Tim going on. I believe the best way we can support these three things in the towns and villages throughout Tanzania is through Bible teachings in print. We need Bible courses, tracts, and deeper books of history and doctrine, all with the consistent message of the early church and a Baptist focus of the kingdom of God. And so three main tasks of this work are, number one, translation. Number two, design and publishing. And number three, printing. Now, Tim goes on here. We praise God for Two extraordinary translators who have been willing to work with us for the past six months. One of them is Pastor Cavoso. He's doing the translation work. So he's getting very familiar with the teachings. We have been able to train them and complete the first draft translation of the majority of the Lamp and Light Bible courses, as well as a few small tracts and books. We expect we can finish the current available Lamb and Light Bible courses by next year. There will be an increasing need for publishing and printing work. We would like to purchase our own in-house small printing on-demand print shop this year. Now, um, there was some discussion in the mission committee what 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 would be a full-fledged Printing um, comp- not compound, but comp- not complex, but whatever apparatus <laughs> would cost forty thousand dollars. But 
someone from somewhere, I don't remember who, actually made it that you can, you can start with increments and you can start with one end and then you can keep on adding. And so you can add on to impl- in increments and that is actually what we would like to do. And then here he is finishing his vision here. We, we have seen such printed materials produce tremendous fruits in other, fruit in other contexts. It has been the foundation of starting the church planting work of AMA in Kenya. It continues to be the foundation of the success of the SALT program in Africa and many other countries, even producing small churches directly from the SALT program. What Tim is saying is translating good teaching materials and books into Swahili Publishing it and distributing it is a tremendous evangelistic tool. That's what he's saying. And that's where the focus of his work is right now, is in that there. It's called foundational work. Now, it's not dramatic. It's not a romantic view of a whole tribe of people with the, uh, a people, uh, a new tribe, a whole tribe village coming into Christ. It's nothing that dramatic. Richard, which is our PR man now, I'll describe him more later, said that 95% of Tanzania claim to be Christian. It's a very Christianized country. When we were going those out to Ruaha Park on this dirt road, bumpy dirt roads, through villages for kilometer after kilometer, every five kilometers probably, there was a huge Orthodox church. One here, five kilometers, one over here, another five kilometers, one over there, built probably a hundred years ago. All the other buildings there are one-story mud brick houses. Here is this huge, huge, uh, in a European style, they're not huge, but for that area, a huge building, a European style building, in the middle of the bush, scattered throughout. Tanzania has been a highly evangelized country. Ambea is known as the city with the second highest amount of different denominations. A city, there's one other city in Africa, and I don't remember which one it was, that has more denominations than Mbeya. Mbeya is the Bible hub of Tanzania. And yet, there's very little holiness there. The, um, yeah, we can, I don't know how to go into that. In, in Avuna, there's at least three groups there. The Seventh-day Adventists. There's a Moravian church there. I don't know how, how active that one is. And there's Catholic influence there as well. But holiness, real kingdom Christians, it's either rare to non-existent. So Tim is doing that unglamorous, tedious, foundational work. That is what we are supporting now when we are giving to HIM. 
and uh, and uh, because of the government situation, because of the loss of STEM, the HIM, uh, I, I know that Tim is a little bit under stress. I, I, he didn't tell me this, just from my gathers. He's a little bit under stress of the financial situation of HIM. <laughs> he, he, he's sensitive to that. Okay, moving on here. Monday, the next day after that Sunday, this is the second Sunday we were there. What's the first concern, first day of concern for Cheryl and the baby? That day, I was introduced to Richard, that PR man. Richard had worked for SIL as a PR, as an in between the, the organization and the government for some years. And he had quit there. And the day that, the day that Tim had found out that we have real issues with the government and the paperwork about that day or a day later, Richard shows up at his door, uninvited, unannounced, offering his services to us while he's uh, looking to uh, future uh, to further his education. It, it, it's just I don't understand the workings of God, but it was it was a godsend. So now he's working for Tim. Well, Monday we made plans to go to the Sungway government complex to see if we can talk to the regional commissioner, which is the one that has ordered us out of Embe- uh, out of uh, Ivuna. We called the complex. The secretary, I think, answered one time and then wouldn't give a hearing. And any other calls no longer answered. We couldn't call. They wouldn't answer our calls. Tim uh, we tried several different phone calls, and I don't know if they had both, Tim's and Richard's, but they wouldn't answer any of the phone calls. So we decided, well, the best we can do is early the next morning, let's just drive there and see what we can do. Now, Tim couldn't leave because of Cheryl's condition, so it was Richard and I that went. A two-hour drive to the government office. <laughs> It's the equivalent of going to Harrisburg to try to talk to the governor without an appointment. That's what we were trying to do. <clears throat> no appointment. We actually didn't know for sure. We, oh, yeah, they, what they wanted to know, they wanted to ask the secretary if she's going to be there. And they couldn't get an answer from her. That's what it was. And then when they tried calling her back, she no longer answered. Well, Richard has a lot of contacts, and he knows a lot of people in that area. In fact, the area where the government, uh, government complex is, Richard is from that area. He, he is from that tribe. He speaks their native language, so he actually found out, yes, she's going to be there. So we decided to take the risk and go. Uh, that's that commissioner that before had treated Tim and Richard very badly with the interrogation that she had. It was... We, she told him to get out of Avuna. And we hadn't been told what we need to be able to do to get back in, and we couldn't get an answer. As we went, Richard told me what his, what his occupation is. He said, my job is connections. That's all I do is I make connections. And you know how Africa works. I don't know if you do or not, but it's not what you know. It's who you know. It doesn't operate straight down the law, a line of law. It operates by connections. 
And he said, all, all, all my job is is to make connection. That's what I do. And that's what we were going for. It's his area. So, in fact, we met his step-grandmother. She works at this government complex. And we met some other his relatives there. Well, we got to meet that secretary that morning that had been avoiding our calls. <laughs> and Richard made a connection. Now, let me describe a little bit. Uh, Richard knew a lot of the people who worked at that government, uh, government complex because they were his people. He grew up with some of them. But the secretary and the regional commissioner were both from outside the area, so he had no connections with them. So we went there, and he got a connection with this secretary, and he felt his relational wavelength, let's say it that way, his relational wavelength said that I got a good connection with her. <laughs> um, that's something that some of us can only understand in theory. We don't understand that. <laughs> some of you probably can better than me. And, and she actually said, uh, come back next Monday. She wouldn't give us an appointment, but she said, come back next Monday and I'll get you a, I'll get, I'll get you to visit, uh, I'll get you a meeting with her. So we lost. That's what we got. We got that connection and the promise to come back. That's what we accomplished that day. On the way back, we stopped for breakfast. And what Richard did is on the main road, and then there was a little road that goes out to Ebuna. He drove in this road a little bit, and there was a restaurant there. And we ate breakfast, and when we came out, we seen the regional commissioner, because we had seen her at the government complex, and we seen her go on the road out to Ebuna, uh, out that direction. And we wondered, well, I wonder if she's going to Ebuna. We didn't know. But... Uh, Anyhow, so we headed on home, and that evening we had supper at Pastor Coloso's house, and, well, I'll just let that go. The next day, Tim took me a probably a half-hour picky-picky ride to visit Pastor Nukumbu, I think. He is one of the men, uh, when, we, uh, when we made the Harmony International organization, we needed to have some people on the Tanzanian side on the board, and he's one of those men. And so we were doing the Richard thing, we were keeping our connections up. So we went to visit him, and that was a very interesting visit. He's the pastor of a Pentecostal church, like a lot of churches are. And uh, their church, they started five other churches from this church. And so they, and they said, it has to, to be, nobody will walk more than two kilometers. Because everybody walks, so you have to have churches. And this was a big church. It's probably the size of this building here, but it had pews and things like that. Stage up front with their drums and stuff. But he told me, he told us, it's hard to keep the men there. They have lots and lots of children. The, the majority of the people coming are children. Parents dress up the little children and send them to church. Some of the mothers come. It's very, very hard to keep the men. It's not cool to go to church if you're a man in that area. 
And he said, as the children grow up, at a certain age, they leave. He was pretty honest about their difficulties. He actually said they were considering starting a soccer team to try to keep the young people in the church. <laughs> I, um, Richard told me that, and not Richard, Tim told me that that church is actually moving in a liberal direction. But anyhow, while we were there, Cheryl, uh, Tim got a call from Cheryl, and we headed home. It was starting to rain as a thunderstorm, and, and we almost wiped out around some corners. And we got back there, and Tim took Cheryl to the hospital right away. We had already planned earlier that we, Vanita and I, would go to Warren and Kim and pay them another visit. And so we got on the bus, went over there, and it was while we were there at Warren and Kim that we found out that Tim's had a little baby, Casia, via C-section. And it's while we were there that we also found out that the regional commissioner had been at Ivuna and had confiscated all the housing there from us and had given the water project over to the village. As far as we could understand, Ivuna was done. They're going to use our housing for the local school teachers there. And the next morning, when Vanita and I got back to Ambea, it decided... Well, we had decided several days ago that Rebecca and Trudy were going to go back to Ivuna, and we considered we were still, we're still going to go back there. Only this time, Tim couldn't go along, so uh, after we visited the hospital, Rebecca, Trudy, and Stephen, and Vanita, and I began our long drive back to Ivuna. Uh, I will spare you the bumpy, muddy conditions going back there, and at that point, we actually didn't know how critical um, Kesia's condition was, actually. But we got back to Ivuna just before dark. The sun was still just low in the sky. And it was a welcome for Trudy and Rebecca. They had been two months since they had left. They had shut the clinic down. You know, they had been living there. They had been working among the village, and then they left. And this is their first visit back. They had, um, they had a great time reconnecting with people I must say I wasn't having such a great time there I felt very socially awkward I couldn't remember when to say Asante and when to say Saloma or anything else and it was some people thrive in social context and some people have to go home and recover from him but I had to go home and recover after I went through the village the next day but I'm sure they had some laughs about me. But we stayed in Tim's compound there, and um, there were two students that lived in the compound taking care of it while they were gone. Those two students went to the local high school, uh, secondary school there, and they also went to the church there, Kevin and uh, Lotte. I think you probably heard of Lotte already. Charlie lived there as well. If you know who Charlie is, that little monkey that we found, uh, very interesting. After all, if you get something like that, after all, even even a monkey can become a pest. After every time you come out, he's around you and crawling on you and doing things that I don't want to talk about. (laughs) 
Then I met Pastor Cradle. Well, he's not pastor. He's the one who's in charge of the church. I really wished I could have talked heart to heart with Cradle. I had to go through. Rebecca was our translator because he doesn't speak English and I don't speak Swahili. But I could sense in my heart we could talk heart to heart. I, I felt really good about, quite, quite good about that man there. It's not that everything is okay. We went to his house um, on Saturday evening, and they invited us for a meal. And in there had a big poster of Jesus on the one side of the poster and a poster of the Virgin Mary on the other side. And you know what that means to us right away. Uh, that's a Catholic poster. I decided not to get into that through Rebecca. But, you know, there's all those, those issues that I'm sure uh, there's a lot of teaching and a lot of understanding yet to come. Well, we did have, uh, and, and uh, by the way, when we were there, Cradle told us what supposedly happened when the regional commissioner was in the village. They, they're, they're planning to use Tim's house and Noel. Noel was, has been building a, a compound at the other edge of the village there at Ivuna. That compound is a, is a center while he goes out and ministers to uh, some nomadic tribe people. This compound there, the house and the various things there, he's been working on that. He's been putting off his Bible studies and things like that to get the center, get the compound done. So it's almost done. It's brand new. It's almost done. And we found out the government's going to take it and put teachers in there. With no recourse. That's what we were told by Cradle and then the warden. The warden is the local government official. He's the lowest official in the village. Tim talked to him and the warden confirmed to Tim what Cradle's saying. It seems like everything is, it's, the story's coming straight. She came in and that's what's going to happen. In a little outdoor service that Saturday evening after dark, I shared a devotion. I'd like to share it a little bit with you. You can turn to First Peter chapter 2. And it had, uh, it had to do with the burden on my heart at that time. As we looked at the little church there, and if Rebecca and Trudy were there, I wanted to both give encouragement and direction there. So I read two verses first in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I want to encourage that little congregation there that we are the people of God. We are beloved. We are special. We've been called. We're not special because of us. We're special because of God. And God called us. We answered his call and we are a special people. We have a unique opportunity to show forth 
the glory of God. And I wanted to encourage them in that. And then I went down a few more verses in verses 19 to 23 in the same chapter that dealt with our present situation there. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. We do not live in a just world. Many Christians have been treated unfairly throughout the ages. If we respond properly to those injustices, trusting in the final justice of God, if we put it and give it to the Lord, those injustices, don't take those injustices in our own hands, we are being like Jesus. We are following the footsteps of Jesus. He left us an example that we should follow his steps. I told Cradle, as he was sitting there at Tim's compound and then describing to us what is, what is happening, this house will be taken, I told Cradle, and she repeated it, Rebecca repeated it through, translated, I said, in my flesh, I feel like coming with a bulldozer and just knocking the buildings down. If we can't have it, neither can you. That's what my flesh was saying to me. Remember we talked about lions? I don't know how Rebecca and Trudy exactly were feeling. I don't know exactly how the church there was feeling. But if there's a lion comes up that says, I want to bulldoze that down. I want to get justice to these people. That is a lion that's coming against me, and I need to slay him with the word of God. Jesus did. He slayed all those fleshly thoughts with the word of God. And because he did, and because we are in him, we can also. So I shared these verses with that small group who was also dealing with the injustice of the government. We left the next Sunday afternoon, and we had to leave in the afternoon so we'd be back by evening so we could go out to the government office early Monday morning. But when we left, we took all the keys along with us, and Rebecca and Trudy, they took some of their personal belongings with them because we had no idea if we would ever be back. The evening, after we were back that evening, Tim called a little family meeting, minus Cheryl. He said that Richard had checked out the regional commissioner a little bit more. She's a Muslim. She has some definite anti-Christian sentiments. And she's from a Tongo, 
I don't know if that's even outside the country maybe. I'm not quite sure. But he said that's an area that is is very prevalent in witchcraft. And even educated and government people go to those powers of witchcraft to get more power. It's not uncommon to have those types of people go. And it was a sober meeting that evening as we recognized that this, what we're dealing with, is spiritual warfare. That's what it is. We were on opposite divides on this government official, and we weren't quite sure what she was all involved in, but we knew enough that we could expect somewhat of a climatic or dramatic event the next day. So we spent some time in prayer that evening in expectation for the next day. Early the next morning, uh, we left. Tim was in the hospital overnight. I drove over to Tim, picked him up. He drove over to Richard, picked him up. And then we got stopped at a road check. Police, there's police checks all over the place over there, and we got stopped. And this time, it was a little different. The police man came and checked all our stickers on the windshield, and then one of the policemen opened up our back door and sat on in. So now we had Richard driving, me in the front. Tim was laying down in the back trying to get some rest. He sat up and entered the policeman. So there's four of us. Well, Richard knew what was going on. The policeman wanted to get to the next road check, and we were going. So we took him to the next road check and dropped him off on the way up there. So that's one thing they do there. We got to the government complex about seven, and we, again, Richard did his normal thing, met everybody he could meet. <laughs> and we waited about two hours, and then the secretary summoned us into this regional commissioner's office. <clears throat> and uh, it was three of us and the secretary, and there was another man there called the, re- no, the administrative secretary. So it was five of us and the, and the regional commissioner that were in there. Now, I couldn't follow everything because sometimes they spoke English, sometimes they spoke in Swahili, and the English they spoke, I couldn't always follow. It was Swahili and not, it was Tanzanian English. But I could tell pretty quickly the disdain she had for us. You can't come in here and set up a village committee and do a water project. You've got to go through the government. You've got to follow the protocol. You've got to do it the way we tell you to do it. And see, the thing is, when we did the water project, we did all that. We asked them, how should it be done? And we went through the proper protocols. But that meant nothing. And and um, so we couldn't tell her that. But what can we do now? Well, I already told you what to do. Well, she had not told us what to do. And I thought, wow, this meeting is not going well. We had asked specifically, what can we do? And they completely ignored our request. They just ordered us out of Ivuna. And this meeting, so far, all she was doing is telling us how wrong we were. Richard had his sights on one thing. 
it didn't matter to him whether she scolded us or railed on us. It didn't matter to him whether she felt like she had to be hard on us so that we would tremble at her feet. It didn't matter to her, to him. He had, he had his sights on one thing. He was looking for a pathway forward. Towards the end, she said, uh, when Tim was going to bring something out, she said, I, I, I have other meetings to go. I, I don't have time for you guys. It's a busy woman. So in response for a request for a pathway forward, she gave our case over to the administrative secretary, which is the, a man that was in the room there. And when Richard asked her specifically about what we heard about in Avuna, about the houses, confiscation, and so on, she said, you should not believe all the speculations you hear. So she... <clears throat> in a few minutes, from Richard's and Tim's perspective, things had turned around completely. This is their perspective, their opinion. It appears she had talked beyond her legal right of what she had done in Ivuna. She talked beyond what she legally was allowed to do or could do. And there was some way she needed to back up and still save face. That's their opinion. And Richard was very, very glad to allow her to back up and save face. All he wanted was a pathway forward. And she gave our case to that, to that uh, other secretary. And we went into his office. He, he had been asked before to help, but he was noncommittal because he didn't know what was up. Now he has the charge to help us forward. He's very helpful. He told us what a government paper should look like. He told us how to fill it out and, and which ways would work better than other ways. And gave, he's just very helpful. And, um, and it appears right now, it appears like we have a way forward and it appears like our, our properties are not confiscated. <laughs> now, do we know the future? We don't know. What does all that mean? What for lions are out there? We don't know. But right now, it looked like things had turned around very, very well. Why is all this happening? Tim, being mired down by government issues instead of moving forward in translation work. This whole government thing has kept the STEM team from going over. It has put HIM deeply into debt deeply, whatever, a <laughs> couple thousand dollars, and we're still trying to recover from that. It's a financial setback. The clinic has been shut down. The fledgling church is sort of left by itself. Why? Do we understand? You know, God is doing something. He is doing something in us. He's doing something in others. These lion battles are battles that God, I believe, prepares for his people. And he prepares them for something bigger. You know, those episodes of David when he was around, in the hills around Bethlehem, when he was taking care of the sheep, he was in school. He was in preparation. 
He was in preparation to be a king. And God used those things. And uh, the best way I can explain at this time is God is doing some preparation for the future. David learned how to walk with God during that time and how to work with God. How do you think he felt the night after he lay down to sleep with his sheep, after he had killed a bear lion, a lion with his bare hands, that hot breath over his face, and he killed him. And as he, later on, you know, in the, in the middle of that thing, you don't reflect, but later on you reflect on it. And he could have thought, you know, I could have been eaten. I could have been all mangled up. I, but God did this. And I believe it, it caused worship and confidence in his God through that experience. Yet he knew that the next day he might face another lion. So he knew he would need to maintain that confidence and faith in God. And I think I'll let that with us here. We, as, as I looked at what happened, we are also in awe. Even with Kesia, we're thankful. But we need to remember to also continue to be vigilant. And I like to read two familiar verses in closing here. First Peter chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil. As a roaring lion. Walketh about. Seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist. Steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished. In your brethren. That are in the world. Lions are normal. Lions are a normal part of a Christian's life. Face the lions in your life. Resist them. Steadfast in the faith. That's what all the Christians are facing the world around. That's what God says. May God bless you. And um, maybe this... Sunday afternoon discussion this time can be about the lions in our lives. May God bless you.